Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the affordable housing crisis. And uh, Richard, we turn again today to housing, something we discussed not that long ago, but it really has become a pronounced issue of late for a couple of reasons. One, the just stratospheric housing costs that we're seeing in some of the major urban coastal markets. We'll get to that in a little bit. But two, the agita in some quarters over what housing policy is going to look like in a Trump administration, especially with Ben Carson, a guy who gifted as he may be as a neurosurgeon, doesn't have a background in this. And he just earlier, actually on the day that we're recording this, named HUD secretary. Uh, Richard, do you share in any of that nervousness about Ben Carson's ability to do this job? Well, sure I do. I mean, even though I admire the man greatly, for anybody who doubts the toughness of his life, the film Gifted Hands, which was made before he got himself involved in politics, shows, I think, one of the best portraits of race relations in the United States that I've ever seen, and hats off to him. <clears throat> the difficulty is, uh, when you take over an office like this, you have to do two things. One, you have to prune down the programs that are already in place, and two, you have to run those that remain. Uh, you're not going to be able to go from 100 to zero, even if politics were put to one side, their budgetary constraints, their statutory obligations, their contractual rights of one sort or another. And running a system well is extremely important. At the same time, you're trying to shop down uh, new initiatives. So the hope would be that what our friend Carson will do is instruct his people going forward to try and put as few restraints as possible on the distribution of federal funds and as few restraints on possible through their enforcement actions under the various housing statutes. But this still leaves this huge backlog which has to be managed and understood. And while there's always room to modify these kinds of things, it takes somebody who's a real expert on the inside to be able to figure out what it is you can do without getting into trouble and what you can do only to get yourself into huge troubles. He certainly doesn't have the on-ground experience. He doesn't want to be in a position where he has to rely on Obama's assistance to uh, do all of this stuff or his chief aides. But remember, when you start talking about career diplomats, people who are deeply opposed uh, to government housing programs don't spend the rest of their careers in an operation like HUD. They go off and they do something else in the private sector. Uh, so the bureaucracy here, similar to the bureaucracy in the Environmental Protection Agency, similar to the bureaucracy in the Department of Education, are all going to be presumptively hostile. They have the huge advantage of inside knowledge. They know where the skeletons are buried and so forth. And it's very difficult for people at the top uh, to penetrate through layers of these organizations uh, to effectuate instantaneous changes. Richard, I want to indulge in a moment for the hypothetical that you floated early in your answer to that question. There are a lot of conservatives who've argued that HUD is, is something that the federal government just doesn't need to be doing. In fact, in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney, whose father was HUD secretary in the Nixon administration, suggested that he would think about abolishing the department if he became president. So let, let's indulge that hypothetical about putting the politics to one side. Is there in an ideal world a federal role here? Do we need a HUD? 
Well, we managed to do perfectly well in housing markets without this operation, which was one of the great society convictions uh, done essentially under the refurbished for progressivism associated with Lyndon Johnson 30 years after the New Deal. Uh, my view is virtually all of these programs are a complete mistake and that the dominant solution in every one of these markets, when you see an imperfection, is to remove an entry barrier, not to keep it in place, not to raise it, and then try to offset it with a subsidy punished by tax under some other case. So yes, I do not see any explanation for this. If you're trying to figure out whether or not there are going to be any kind of systematic market failures, it's not going to be with respect to pricing and quality. There are going to be the kinds of difficulties that sometimes are associated with the location of units, their interconnection with the infrastructure, the pollution that they might admit, their adjacencies to other property. But virtually all of those problems are better solved at the local level rather than being done at the national level. And the difficulty that you get with the national stuff is it opens you up to huge amounts of wealth transfers from one region of the country, which is going to be subsidized by a sympathetic administration with the taxes being imposed on the other. Uh, so there is a kind of a European theory which has a lot of cachet and some real good sense about it, known as subsidiarity. And what it says is when you're dealing with most markets, you want the smallest unit that embraces all of the relevant considerations to do the operation, not to make it larger. And quite clearly, that's either the county, the city, uh, or the or the state, it's not going to be the federal government. So I think that as a matter of general theory, uh, this was another one of the major great society mistakes. If it were possible to reverse things without penalty, I would do it. But as we say, once something gets into place, it's entrenched. There are all sorts of reliance interests, and the management of disentanglement is very, very difficult indeed. So let me ask you about some of the policies that Ben Carson will be inheriting, Richard. One of the major housing initiatives out of the Obama administration – was something called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule, uh, the goal of which was to change the composition of communities by conditioning HUD grants on building housing for what were defined as underrepresented groups, underrepresented by race, by class, by English proficiency. There's several other variables too. And to hear the advocates tell it, this was a harmless effort just to sort of make sure that these communities weren't exclusionary. So so can you tell us a little bit about how that would work and whether you think it's as benign as the advocates say it is? I regard this as absolutely the worst program ever devised by the Obama administration uh, for dealing with housing. Um, I mentioned that local institutions are generally better able to solve these problems than national ones, and it turns out that what they're trying to do is to develop these end-state patterns of who ought to live next to whom at the federal level, and it turns out that virtually no Nobody at the local level happens to agree with them, including the intended beneficiaries of the various housing programs. Housing siting is extremely difficult to undertake because people care about so many things. They care about who their neighbors are. They care about the kinds of stores that they can shop in, the recreational facilities they can use, their access to jobs, and so forth. As a general business matter, uh, when you're talking about housing, like tends to prefer to be with like. By whatever criterion you have to use. And there's a pretty good reason for that. Housing is a melange of public
public and private interest. And what you do is you have people who have units and the units are on halls and the halls are in neighborhoods with others per streets and so forth. If you get people of wildly different interests, wildly different incomes and so forth, it becomes extremely difficult to figure out how you organize these public spaces in ways that start to please everybody. Uh, so there is always a natural tendency for segregation by wealth, sometimes by race, but not always, sometimes by language, uh, to create neighborhoods. So if you look at bustling cities and so forth, they used to talk about the Italian quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Puerto Rican quarter, the black quarter. These were not necessarily imposed from without, although sometimes they were. And if they're not, what you want to do is to figure out why they're doing it that way. And once you understand that, then the question is whether or not the government should spend an enormous amount of money telling local governments that they have to make sufficient efforts to get it right. Here is what the problem is. Uh, The government could build housing, but it cannot make sure that people whom they want to live in that housing will live there. The amount of self-sorting by individual recipients of housing is just enormous. So when some private, when some government agency decides to do this, that, or the other program and it fails, uh, the government is always going to be in position to say, you didn't try hard enough, you didn't put the right incentives in effect. And what you then do is you get this huge battle in which the feds are trying to steamroll the local governments when virtually all of their voters are against what the federal government is trying to do. So there's nothing particularly innocuous about this. It's what Robert Nozick used to call a long time ago the fallacy of pattern principles. And essentially in a free society, people form their arrangements voluntarily. They tend to sort into certain kinds of groups. And it's very difficult to predict which way they are sorting themselves. But generally, if it's all done through voluntary transaction, that's a source of legitimation. What happens is the government has a very very strong end state, which is actually wrong, as far as I can tell, for most of the thing that it wants to do, and then it makes everybody dance to its tune. Now, to be careful, you must understand that this affirmative program here is dependent upon the receipt of public monies. So basically, you have to take the bitter with the sweet. And what most local governments have finally come to conclude is that the strings are so onerous that you're better off doing without the money. But it gets worse than this, because in some neighborhoods, the government will have a benign level to what's going on locally. In other neighborhoods, the federal government will not be so benign. So there's nothing that guarantees equal treatment across different neighborhoods. And there's always a deep suspicion uh, that if you're in a blue administration with Democrats, red states are going to really take it hard. And that's certainly been the case with respect to Texas. Or if you're in a blue state, it may be a rich red state community. There's been a huge imbroglio in Westchester County in New York City, which is generally upper class and so forth. Uh, So these selection pressures are always there. And I would think that the first thing that Carson would want to do would be to make sure, to the extent that it's possible, that no new money goes out underneath these kinds of programs. The Republican preference for block grants to city and states, if you're going to be in the subsidy game, is manifestly superior. I want to shift our focus a little bit to some of the housing fights that are happening on the local level. You write in your most recent Defining Ideas column about this ballot question in Los Angeles. It's coming up next week, actually, called Measure S. It would have some pretty dramatic effects on the housing situation there. and That, of course, is already a market that has some real affordability issues. Explain what's at stake there. 
Well, what happens is people are saying that the uh, rich inside are developing and so forth are taking over the community. And the only way in which we can slow this thing down is to make sure that if you have to rezone or upzone in some particular way, you can't do so for the next two years. And the theory is that other interests in the community will then be able to take over and create a more equitable form of housing. Uh, the mayor, of course, Garcetti, is one of the people who's most opposed to this. And it's because of the rather strange way in which zoning programs are organized. What happens in many communities is that the sort of standing default zone is one which is highly restrictive of new construction, often is agricultural zoning. And then what the town says, you want to put something up here, you're going to have to bargain with us so that we can do essentially on a local level what HUD sometimes try to do on a domestic level. Tell you how many units you have to have here, whether some of them have to be affordable, what kinds of amenities have to be put in, what sort of rent breaks have to be given, and so forth. Um, If you don't allow that bargaining to take place, as it always has, it means that there will be no new projects at all being built inside the city. And that means, in effect, that existing owners are going to find that they have a greater deal of leverage in the market, the supply essentially will be contracted, the demand will become more intense if people are moving in there, and rents will skyrocket, jobs in construction will certainly start to go down, and the level of political vitriol that will spread throughout the community will be second for none. Um, This is being supported, I think, by some kind of a local AIDS group, if I'm not mistaken, which has its own particular kind of agenda. Um, It's being opposed by virtually every respectable force there. The Los Angeles Times actually ran an editorial saying, you know, some of these groups printed excerpts from some of our speeches, which made it appear as though we were in favor of Measure S. We want you, ladies and gentlemen, to know that we are dead opposed to this thing. Here is the coat the quotation that they took out of context. Here is what we actually said. And what makes this so potent is the Los Angeles Times actually has a lot more sympathy for government intervention in the, for- of a, in the form of affordable housing programs than I do. And they understand that this is simply going a bridge too far. So I think, in effect, that if you get to affordable housing, it's almost always a mistake. But at least affordable housing gives you the chance to have some housing. And this program will just bring everything to a dead halt. It will ruin the tax base. It means that you're going to get new construction on the outside of Los Angeles. It's just a bad deal all around. So final question I'll put to you then. It's telling, I think, that the entire field that has grown up around housing and around the design of cities is referred to as urban planning. As, as a classical liberal, as someone who's generally allergic to the notion of public sector planning, what's your reaction to the intellectual predilections of that field? Well, there is planning and there is planning. Let me give you an illustration of what was a quite brilliant plan uh, in about 1810 or 1812 in New York City. Uh, What DeWitt Clinton did, I think it was him when he was mayor, was to announce that north of 14th Street, I am putting a grid. And what he did is he marked out the big city streets and the small streets, the cross streets and everything else, and nothing was built. It was just out there as a grid, and then slowly it would be filled in. And the basic thing that made this work is that if you were a farmer, you could farm anywhere you wanted on the grid. But the key point was the moment you decided to build something, you would get no compensation for the building 
if it turned out it was on an area that was designated as part of the street, which meant that people organized their housing in a way that actually meant that it was compatible with the streets that would come. And you didn't try and tell people what to put, but you just told them where it was that they would put them because they had knowledge of what the infrastructure is going to be like. That's fine. And in fact, this was upheld in about 1836 in one of the finer decisions to come out of the New York courts at that time. Amazingly sophisticated. I think it was a case called In Ray Furman Street or some such title. Um, modern planning is very different. So starting with the zoning laws of 1961 in New York City, we stop worrying about noise. We stop worrying about blocking lights. What we say is, ah, here's a block. You could put this building up, but this better be a manufacturing plant or this could be an artist colony. Maybe we want to have a little commercial here. And what they always do is they guess wrong because they don't understand both the positive and negative interactions between various kinds of real estate. It's one of the great ironies in land planning that the same year that New York City puts forward its aggressive zoning code, which did so much to slow down development, that was the year that Jane Jacobs wrote a book about the death and life of American cities, saying that when you part putting housing into zones, you create dead spaces at night or during the day, because what you're doing is having housing configurations and real estate utilization that nobody turns out to want. So you want to essentially do the infrastructure planning early on so as to give notice, but you don't want to try to be planning for end states. And the old Hayekians correctly understand the importance of the grid, which is a big deal, and they're deeply offended by the rest of this type of situation. Uh, So my view about it is you cannot do urban planning without having some degree of planning. Do you really want to assume that we're going to build a freeway across an entire city, but we're not quite sure that the various units are going to be able to connect? Somebody has to figure out where the road is going to go, how wide it's going to be, whether it's off-grade or on-grade and so forth. You want to do all of that stuff. What you don't want to do is to tell people how it is that they ought to develop their units as to what goes on inside their walls. And just to give you one kind of parallel, when we started to talk about the allocation of spectrum in the 1930s, this was exactly the time that zoning laws uh, took hold in the United States. And Herbert Hoover uh, was in charge of both of these things, one by being a model planner when he was the Secretary of Commerce, another by sponsoring the federal legislation. And where did they go wrong with the telecommunications stuff? Well, they went wrong when they tried to figure out what the composition of the traffic was in the public space instead of trying to minimize interference between neighboring frequencies. Uh, The interference stuff is a technical problem that you can solve. Uh, Trying to figure out who should get what frequency when leads to the same kind of confusions you get with zoning, which proves, I think, a very important point. The difficulties that you're talking about zoning are not a unique function of this being real estate. It is a function of assuming that when you assign property rights, you don't spend your time worrying about boundary conditions at the edge. You spend your time trying to figure out what ought to go in the middle. That's a mistake that progressives made in the 1930s, and it's one that they replicated in the 1960s and beyond. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thanks as always to our listeners. And Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and it's at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.